important day for her, so please keep her in prayer. Right, a lot of a lot of us know Frankie Brown. Grew up in our church here. He's right around 30 years old. His fiance uh, has been diagnosed with breast cancer, so we want to be in prayer. Very young age uh, for that. So we'll try to get her exact name to have uh, for you uh, next week. We're going to be reading in just a moment out of Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. You know, I was amazed to find out this past week that the Appomattox Historical Park, or what locals call the Surrender Grounds, that's located about 15 to 20 miles um, I guess it would be northwest, uh, or actually southwest of here, uh, has had, as of 2019, 14,170,000 people visiting it. That's amazing, especially the census that same year of Appomattox County was 16,000. If you can imagine over the past 50 or so years, 14 million plus people coming to that site is truly incredible. But even more interesting is that among all of these uh, 14 million who made their way, they actually have to go out of their way to get to the historical park. Highway 24 is by no means a major artery. Uh, there's not really any significant landmarks within a 50 mile radius. So simply put, when you see those cars traveling along Highway 24, representing almost every state and probably every state of the union, in all likelihood, you know that they're going to the place where our nation reunited. For all but three and a half years of my life, I've lived within 30 minutes of the historical park there in Appomattox. I've personally visited the park a number of times. Sometimes I feel I'm so familiar with it that I could almost be one of the guides of the tours. But to be honest, in the last 10 years, I may have visited the park one time. You know, and that's amazing when you think that this site that is around us that is so impressive to so many people, we have become so familiar with it that we just say, yeah, it's a good place. You know, Aesop said, familiarity breeds contempt. But I found in my own life that familiarity breeds indifference. Things that are in our neighborhood, things that we uh, pass by all the time, things that we're familiar with, we all often become comfortable with such things. If we're, off, if we're honest today, we often do that with Jesus. Our familiarity with Jesus sometimes uh, removes what is the rightful uh, glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's especially difficult during this season. We're so familiar with all of the symbols of Christmas. We're so familiar with the hymns that we're singing. We're so familiar with the scriptural accounts of Jesus' birth. That if we're not careful, we allow our familiarity to lead us into indifference. Over these next few, four weeks, we're going to look at the person of Jesus Christ, hopefully for you 
afresh and anew. And in the familiarity of these coming days of this Christmas season, that the desire of our hearts should be that we would embrace anew the wonder of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the greatest preacher who ever lived. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, is unparalleled. Every preacher, you don't want a preacher to preach a sermon. You want a preacher to preach a message. And by that, I may be just uh, dealing with an issue of semantics, but a preacher is to preach what the Lord has placed on his heart. A sermon actually originates with the one who gives it. Jesus preached a sermon in its truest point because he is the source of the message and he himself uh, was a great teacher and preacher. He's the greatest missionary who ever lived. All of us know missionaries who have given uh, great amounts of their time, great amounts of their money. They've sacrificed great things. They've given up possessions and they've traveled great distance. No one on mission ever traveled farther than the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven to earth. No one gave a greater cost. The very uh, body of God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, giving up his life for us. Jesus is the greatest pastor who ever lived. We just finished a study on the I am sayings, and he said of himself in one of those sayings, I'm the good shepherd. A shepherd is the same word that we might use as a pastor. And think about Jesus as you read about the accounts of his ministry. He always served with a pure motive. He never was motivated by what he could gain from others. He was unmatched in his wisdom. He, he was perfect in his actions, always serving at the right time. So over the next month, we're going to look at this one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And today we're going to begin in Hebrews chapter 2. And I want to begin reading in verse 9. But we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time so that by, by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the source of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father." That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Again, I will trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God gave me. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Fathers, we open your word today. It is our desire... I know it's my heart's desire, and I trust all of our heart desire to experience you afresh in this season where we acknowledge and celebrate your first advent. Lord, we confess to you that even your name and your person we take for granted in seasons. 
then, Lord, we don't ascribe the worth and the glory and the honor that is due you. But, Lord, we want to change that today. Lord, speak through your word. We thank you for the writer of Hebrews. We thank you for his message that lifts up the name of Jesus. That's the desire of our heart today. And I pray it in his holy name. Amen. You know, as we look at the greatness of Christ, there's maybe nowhere in the Bible better uh, than this study in Hebrews today. I can't think of another book of the Bible where it would be better to study about Jesus' exalted state than in this book. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, uh, very simply put, there are two things that the writer does to, uh, to demonstrate to us the superiority of Jesus Christ. First, he says that he is superior to all people. In Hebrews chapter 3, uh, it mentions there that that Moses was a servant, but in comparison and much greater, Jesus was the very son. In, in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 4, as it speaks about the rest and God's rest, and that's a great chapter in the Bible, he spoke about Joshua and he says, Joshua gave rest, but he did not give the true rest. The one who can give true rest to our souls is the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 5, we see see that the high priest served in man's temple, but Jesus Christ serves uh, in a greater temple in the heavenlies and in heavens uh, for the glory of God the Father. He's superior also to all things. Jesus is overall and distinct from created order. We see that in chapter 1. Jesus is over any sacrifice. In chapter 9, he is presented as the once for all sacrifice as compared to the old covenant sacrifices where day after day the priest would offer sacrifices, not one of those being once for all and accomplishing all. But Jesus Jesus, when he sacrificed himself, it was a once-for-all sacrifice, and he sat down. That is, the job was finished. And then in chapter 8, we see that he is superior over that thing that is called the Old Covenant, and that that which was written uh, on stone was something, but he writes on the hearts of his believers. So in the midst of, of the writer of Hebrews exalting the person of Jesus, we see in chapters 1 and chapters 2 a, a, distinct, a distinct order of creation to which he compares Jesus. That is the angelic order. He is superior to the angelic order. Angels are great. They are ministering spirits but Jesus is God. Angels are created beings. Jesus is the eternal God. Angels bring a message from another, that is God. Jesus is God in the flesh who brings the message to us. So on this first Sunday of Advent, a Sunday of hope, we understand today that Jesus is our hope of glory. He's the answer everything. Even though we don't see him with our eyes now, we experience him in our hearts. And we understand what the scripture teaches, that there's coming a time when he's coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to set up his rule on this earth. Our text this morning speaks to the truth of the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came to this earth. God did not send a secondary messenger. The scripture tells us that Jesus took on flesh. 
that today as we look at this first Sunday, we understand that our hope is in the one who issued forth that hope by coming to us at Bethlehem and dying for us at Calvary. Our text, as we look today in in verse 9 of chapter 2, begins with these words, But we do see Jesus, made lower than the angels for a short time. Now, what does this mean, lower than the angels for a short time? He's already spent two chapters saying that Jesus is exalted over these created beings, angels. He's already told us that angels are really ministering spirits, and Jesus Christ is God himself. He's not in any way saying here, made lower, that Jesus by his nature became lower than any part of created order. No, he's saying that he does not lose his godship, that he is, has been, and always will be God. What does this speak to being made lower than the angels for a short time? It speaks to that short time being when Jesus came to this earth, God in the flesh. It speaks to his becoming man, the creator taking on the attributes of creation, fully God and fully man, though for a short time while on this earth. Now, we cannot explain it, but we do not need to explain it. The truth is not dependent on our understanding. The truth is dependent on God's very nature, and God's Word teaches us this. I've said it time and time again, and I want to emphasize it again, and it's important for us to know. If you've been here a while, you said, Rick, you say this all too much, but it's important for us to know, and so we put it in bold print. The Creator is not subject to the laws of creation. God can be who he is, God can manifest himself in the way he wants to be. You say, well, how can he be fully God and fully man? I don't know any person that could be that. Well, you're comparing him to created order. The creator is greater than created order. How great is Jesus? We see that he fulfills everything that was intended for him. But why did he take on human flesh? Why did God have to, for a time, be made lower than the angels? Why did the Son of God, God himself, the three-in-one, the Lord Jesus Christ, why did he come to this earth? Well, he had to arrive to Bethlehem before he could get to Calvary. We see, as we look at it, I want to focus on really three reasons Jesus became flesh. The first is he came to this earth in the flesh in order to fulfill his purpose toward us. We needed it. And so he came to this earth to fulfill his purpose toward us. We find three purpose clauses, and to be honest, our study this morning is going to center around each of these. In verse 9, we find the first of these, and it says uh, that he was made lower than the angels for a short time. There's the clause, so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone. He came to this earth for us, that he might taste death for us. But he had to come to this earth in order to do it. I was reading this past week, statisticians have said that over one quarter of the people in the workforce of the United States in 2021 are working remotely. 
26% of people in the U.S. are working from home. You see, home was heaven for the Lord Jesus Christ, but he could not accomplish that job be remotely. He had to come to this earth, and he had to die for us. He couldn't stand back in heaven. The, the purpose of the Father and his love for us brought him to earth. I love the Sunday school lesson today. As we got toward the end of the lesson, and I got a little long-winded, we had to sort of bring that last part in the last two or three minutes, but uh, there was Abraham in the Old Testament, Genesis 22, ready to sacrifice his son, and a ram was caught in the thicket. It said that he looked up and he saw the ram, and he immediately knew this ram would be the substitute for his son's own life. God provided uh, the ram as a substitute. Do you realize that God provided Jesus Christ as your substitute. The, the writer says here in, in verse 10, uh, for in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it, it was appropriate that God should make the source of their salvation, that is Jesus, perfect through sufferings. Now Jesus, uh, he was without blemish. He didn't need any more perfection, but it's almost like a molten fire would do. The substance is there, just the fire revealed the purity of the substance. And so Jesus Christ himself, through his suffering, proved that he was God. He's the source of our salvation. He came to this earth to be your substitute, to take your sin upon himself. But there's also another reason that he came. Uh, the incarnation, it fulfilled his purpose toward Satan and death. We found another purpose clause here and another dimension for the reason Jesus came. Look at verse 14. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus shared in these. So that, there's that clause again, through his death, he might do two things, it says. He might destroy the one holding power over death, that is the devil, and he might free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. In other words, he fulfilled his purpose, not just toward us in being our substitute, but he also fulfilled the eternal purpose of by coming to this earth, dying, being raised from the dead, and overcoming the two greatest enemies you and I have, the devil and what he can bring about in our lives and death. He's greater than death. He's greater than the devil. 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. You know, the first prophecy of Jesus' victory over uh, Satan was in Genesis 3, 15. You remember the embodiment of Satan, the serpent who deceived. The judgment came to him in Genesis chapter 3, and it said, You will strike uh, the seed of the woman's uh, heel, but he will strike your head. The, the strike of, of uh, uh, the heel is not a death blow, but the strike on the head is. And so what he was saying there is that Jesus was going to overcome the devil, and he did. And it was proven through his resurrection. You say, well, if he's won the battle, and Jesus did, when he said it is finished, he won the war, you say, why, why is the devil manifest here today? Why is there so much evidence of it? Well, I go back to the Civil War uh, illustration. April 9th, 1865, 
The war was settled in Appomattox back in 1865, but historians say up to six to eight months after that, there were skirmishes and battles in the Western Front of people who did not hear the war was over. And so while battles exist today spiritually, and they're very real, the fact of the matter was the victory was won at Calvary, and he's going to come back, and it will be manifest for all of eternity. He came to bring victory to bring victory over death and over Satan. But then there's a final purpose in Jesus' incarnation. And while he had to become flesh, it fulfilled his purpose toward the Father. It fulfilled his purpose first toward us. We needed a substitute. We could not pay for our sin. Jesus became that payment when he died on the cross. He who knew no sin took our sin upon himself. It fulfilled his purpose toward death and toward Satan. He must come to this earth and prove he was triumphant over both, and he did. But it also fulfilled his purpose toward the Father. And that's right, there's a third purpose clause uh, here in verses 17 and 18. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way. There's those two words again. So that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest, and then we could highlight in matters pertaining to God. Not that the other part isn't important, but in matters pertaining to God. He's, all, he's already talked about matters pertaining to us. We need a substitute. He's already talked about in matters to pertaining to death and Satan that he would overcome them, but also in matters pertaining to God, and he adds, to make atonement for the sins of the people. I appeal you to, to you today on the authority of God's word. God is just and God is merciful. And these two distinct qualities of the divine nature can and are interrelated. And they are best interrelated through Jesus Christ. God is just. He cannot ignore sin. Sin must be paid for. That is true by God's nature. He does not and cannot overlook sin. Yet God is also not just just, but he's merciful. His desire is to show mercy. Wherever you are today, God wants to show you mercy. He loves you and wants to be merciful. I love what Anselm said hundreds of years ago. He said, Jesus Christ makes sense. Only man has sinned. Only God can forgive sin. God corrected the problem of man by sending the God-man to pay the price for our sin. As our high priest Jesus presents us to the Father. He goes before the Father for us. And only forgiveness can only come through Jesus Christ. That word atonement can be a difficult word to understand, but it's very important for us to understand as Jesus' uh, incarnation and his subsequent death on the cross relates to God the Father. Atonement means that he paid a sufficient price for our sin. And, and, and literally what it means is that he averted the wrath of God that was due toward us to himself. 
Let me illustrate it this way. I can become uh, very angry with someone and hopefully I wouldn't lose control. But rather than taking out that anger toward that person, I can bite my lip and then go home and throw my fist into a wall. Now, I wouldn't advise doing that. But what have I done? I've taken the anger that I have toward a human being. I've averted that wrath somewhere else. When Jesus Christ died as our atoning sacrifice, the wrath that was due us was inflicted upon him. And we have to be very careful here. God's wrath is not like our wrath. Our wrath can be self-centered and sinful at times. God's wrath is simply this, his just reaction towards sin. And so when we sin, the, the wrath that should be directed toward the subject of that sin is instead atoned or turned toward and averted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Simply put, he took upon himself the wrath of God. And so he came toward God to fulfill that purpose of being our atoning sacrifice. You know, this first Sunday of Advent, our theme is hope. This world needs hope, doesn't it? We have the hope. And his name is Jesus Christ. I like how this chapter concludes. He says, for since he himself has suffered when he is tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. He's able to help you today. He is your hope. In this holy season, we do not need to forget how great he is. He who did not withhold his own life, how would he not give us all that we need? He, he, he's our substitute. He is our victor. He's the one who's overcome. He has sufficiently fulfilled the Father's plan. I began by speaking of something familiar, the historical park just down the road, and I close with something else that's familiar to so many Christians, and it's an appropriate hymn this first Sunday of Advent, The Solid Rock, written by a man named Edward Mote a number of years ago. I, I researched him a little bit uh, a couple of days ago and realized that Edward Mote was a, a cabinet maker by trade, and he wrote the song, um, The Solid Rock, in one day. He was walking to his job site one day and he felt a desire to put into words a song uh, to the Lord. And, and, and he began on, a, on the walk to work, he got the refrain just like that, this, the part that we sing, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. As he was working throughout the day, he was still working, but his mind was continuing to work too, and God gave him the verses to the song, Solid Rock. I like the first verse, and it says this, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but do what? Holy lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let me ask you today, is your hope in the one who delivers? Because he does. Is your hope 
in the one who willingly has offered to be your substitute for your sin is your hope the one who's victorious over sin and death and Satan is your hope on the one who pleased the Father fulfilling God's purpose by being your atoning sacrifice taking upon himself the judgment that was due you let's pray Father as we have seen the Lord Jesus Christ today we thank you for your word and father where this message where this text meets the road for us is this jesus is our hope in a world that's ever changing lord he's constant lord we know that he has done all that is needed for us to be in right relationship with you lord if there be any today who have yet to trust the lord jesus christ i pray it would be so this day and Lord, for all of us, as we enter the hustle and bustle of this holy season on this first Sunday of the Advent, may we resolve to look at you anew and afresh, to sing a new song to you in this season. And I pray it in Jesus' name.